0: Hey guys, welcome to episode 6 of Rolling for Change. This is a podcast about the benefits of being a tabletop board gamer. Yay! So in this episode, my friends Josue Cardona and Brian Peace, my regular co-hosts, along with my friend David Skoog, uh, get together to talk about oppression and marginalization in board gaming. Now the exciting thing about having David Skoog along is David seems to have a very in-depth knowledge of the ways that board gaming has represented... And sometimes continued the codification of oppression and marginalization within the tabletop board gaming world. If that seems like a mouthful, it really is. There's so much to discuss, and I'm very excited to offer this discussion to you. Um, so, without further ado, here's episode six Board Gaming and Oppression. Thanks for listening. <laughs> for Change, a podcast about the psychology and experience of board gaming. My name is Woody Harris, and I am joined by my friends and co-hosts, Mr. Josue Cardona. Hey, guys. Brian Peace. Yo, sup? And our special guest, uh, David Skoog. Uh, hello, everybody. Today, we're going to be talking about oppression, racism, and board games, or colonialization, how, there are many ways we can we can talk about it in terms of how board games structure and teach us about culture and the ways that culture is uh, modified and fetishized as well as experienced. And we're going to basically talk about board games as both a way of experiencing and understanding culture as well as a way of understanding uh, racism and uh, oppression and things of that nature. So, uh, I guess we just start with a brief synopsis and kind of talk about what oppression is and what power structure is. I, My experience of it, my understanding of it is oppression is basically when an in group, a, a popular group, manages to distort culture in such a way as they push down people that are not in their their way of living. Um,
1: Well, so I mean, you have a distinction that you can draw between individual oppression and structural oppression, the same as individual bigotries and structural bigotries. Mm -hmm. So structural elements of oppression don't require an active contribution on the part of any single individual within this collective so it's possible to produce systems which disadvantage one or more groups of people without any explicit act of evil so like we have you know we tend to think of oppressive structures as you know going back to like the civil rights era right so you can you think of the use of force against protesters and against people in their daily lives mm-hmm. this is an easy to understand thing but it doesn't require that right like lots of so there were lots of individual acts of of discrimination on the part of the Veterans Bureau when people were coming back from World War II. So, like, veterans benefits were often given to white um, to to white uh, veterans, but not to black veterans. So, like, the GI Bill and these sort of things. This was an explicit act of of racism on the part of certain members of mm-hmm. the Veterans Bureau, but. When that group phased out, the Veterans Bureau didn't really properly fix its relationship with black veterans. So they did still tend to be, to under-receive the benefits that were accrued to them by their service. Even though it was no longer the explicit policy of the system to say, yeah, forget those people. Right, so like my father went to college on his veterans benefits as a World War II veteran. He had members of his own squad that were black that never made it to college because they never got their benefits. you know. So that's the, the World War II generation but we still continue to see this even down in the modern day. So it doesn't take an explicit action.
0: Okay, and, and you talked about the difference in um, a uh, an individual versus a systemic basically. Yeah. Um, sense of oppression, racism, power structures. Um,
2: Yeah, maybe an example, right, um, we were talking about before recording was that I was born in Puerto Rico and although I was born an American citizen in Puerto Rico, there are certain rules that do not apply the same way they do to other American citizens. For example, they cannot vote for president, right? And even though they are a part of the United States and... You know, is that is that explicit? Is that not explicit? Um, I don't know how you would categorize that uh, exactly in the terms that you were using, David. But, you know, it's something that that I see. Right. And, I, and I've seen um, my my entire life.
1: Yeah, I mean, clearly, right. The act of Congress that the acts of Congress that were passed to disempower Puerto Rican citizens relative to other United States citizens, these were explicit acts. Right. But they've now created a systemic issue where most people on the continental zone, right, most people that are sort of, you know, quote unquote, American, um, they don't even understand the scope of the issues with the islands. You know, like Puerto Rico and Guam and the other protectorates, you know, if you poll an American at random and try to ask them, you know, you get really, really poor levels of understanding about the systemic things that puerto ricans face even after they've migrated to the u.s
0: yeah i would say i myself am completely oblivious to a lot of these things just because it's not been part of my education you know Mm -hmm. and that's one of the subtle ways that systemic uh oppression Mm -hmm. uh racism kind of takes place is that we we put the information outside of the power structure, we outside of the educational channels. So we're all kind of left blinded by things. And so I guess the thing is that as board gamers, uh, we are exposed to oppression and racism in ways that other people are maybe not always exposed to them. Um, or not exposed to them explicitly in some cases.
3: Uh, Explain L- Like um, some of the games about colonialism, we know for a fact that there were slaves involved or that there was oppression of an entire race but the game just doesn't address it at all.
1: Yeah, whitewashing. Like,
3: like Puerto Rico, for instance. Our favorite whipping child for this one. Um, they have qu- colonists, which I put air quotes around, who do all the work on the plantations. Um, these were not voluntary colonists. Who did most of the work on the plantations? Um, they were slaves, yeah. so you're put you're playing little pieces as slaves, but you're calling them colonists because well, they just didn't want to discuss it in the rules for the game. So oh,
1: it's it's even better than that. Like the physical component is just a little wooden disc, and they could have picked a disc of any color. Instead, they picked a dark mahogany.
0: Right. Not even a yeah. Meeple? So that is one of. the...
1: It's not even a meeple. It's just it's a. Plain, small, little disc. Well... This is before the advent of the Meeple, actually. Yeah, yeah so Meeple's weren't so common the when the they
0: meeple. made Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. But um, you had... I was talking to David just before we recorded here, and you had uh, done some research and sort of discovered some things about the games and how they they fell into different categories.
1: Yeah, so... Um, just to do a quick thing, so what I did is I looked at the top 500 games on Board Game Geek. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also looked at my own collection just to, you know, hold myself to the same standard. So um, I have, and I bend them into four categories, right? So we have 12 games that, in, that deal with these themes, but they deal with it by whitewashing it. So Puerto Rico being an example, Mombasa being another example. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's another 13 games and this is where my own personal games are overrepresented so this is <laughs> that's an interesting thing to learn um and it's, it's this is one of the more again one of the more problematic categories this is the one that uses sort of exoticism or fetishization yeah you know so um like for example a game that i love mongrovia yes um the the use of the islands in the way that they are it's totally fetishism, but this is 13 games, another 13 games that I found. Okay. So if you exclude the ones that are not in the top 500 that I own, the number goes down to eight. Okay. So it was another eight games in the top 500. Um, And then there are, I have two games in the top 500 that I also own personally um, that engage or confront the issue. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I found another two that I own and they're in the top 500 and that they use one of these settings that is normally subject to fetishization okay, uh, and they do it in at least one that does that passes sort of a bechdel level test of not explicitly awful
0: yeah there almost needs to be that test when we look at yeah. board games but so i i would imagine that in my collection there are more fetishization games mm. that are there um bora bora being one of my favorite games of all time
1: Yep, Borobor is on the list.
0: Can you tell me why the fetishization side is not? I'm like, you know, I, I think I was talking to you about this the other day. If someone took the American culture and fetishized it, I, as an American citizen, probably wouldn't get very upset by that. Right,
1: so let's stop right there and talk about why. Okay. Oppression fundamentally is a power mechanic. Yes. Right. As the U.S. currently is the world superpower. There is no way to utilize American identity in a way that is anywhere analogous to what can be done to African identities and Polynesian identities and Caribbean identities, right? Because we come from the position of power, Mm -hmm. there's just no way to manipulate that in such a way as to disempower and dehumanize us. Okay. Okay. Right. So, so the, we
0: can't feel what they, what someone in a oppressed culture might feel looking at the artwork. Not, not and... via
1: that identity, right? Right. Okay. So, like, you have to always be really careful about how you understand blocks of people,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? But our American identity, right—the blue shield that is an American passport—this protects us from things that other societies and cultures can feel. We just we're never victimizable in that way. We are the default position of power, right? So if you take like the most ridiculous construction of like a a Los Angeles, you know, surfer boy or like, you know, take Baywatch to the ultimate extreme. Mm -hmm. um, If you fetishize the cowboys leaving out Indians um, from that classical construction, but if you fetishize cowboys, Mm -hmm. you just, you, these are the points that are sort of default heroes, right? Like, right. You know, Ronald Reagan was famous as an actor for doing a lot of that Western culture stuff. You know, um, when we think of like the, you know, the Dirty Harry and the other things that Clint Eastwood has done. He comes from the default position of hero. There's no way of taking these identities and turning them into some sort of like clown car show that fundamentally does harm. In the same way as if you take East Asia, okay, and you know, like for example, in modern culture, the way that the geisha is used in modern American culture, it's a profound ignorance of the of the role of the geisha in ancient ancient and up through into modern Japan, right? the the exotic, the the exoticism of the geisha is a it's a different thing than like Pretty Woman in the U.S. Okay, right. Like, uh, and even that that equivalence point. Like geishas are not hookers. Like that's what we, how we tend to think of them, and that's just not. It's ugh, no. <laughs> um, so,
0: so the the fetishization games then. They support some kind of subtle institutional racism that we are all involved in as gamers in the first place. Yeah, and,
1: and, and exotic, The exoticism and the fetishization it usually is the the easiest place to see that sort of subconscious level of bigotry. You know, it's you go and you look at, you know, like so. I've got a game on the list that's not top five hundred. Sultania, right? Okay. Sultania uses the Arabian Nights. Right, This uses the setting of the, the 1001 Tales of the Arabian Nights and absolutely nothing about the mechanics of that game speak to that. Like there's you could strip that entire thing off and replace it with something else. It's just you're basically pattern like it's a tile laying game fundamentally with certain physical constraints about where tile placement occurs for the purpose of constructing visual patterns. And then you'll score out the game based on the visual patterns at the end.
0: Right. So there is no experience of what is actually, you're using the culture in a way that there is no experience of the culture, basically. Yeah.
1: I, and they slapped this Arabian Nights theme over the top of it um, for differential player powers and the use of genie. So the genies. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's kind of perverse um, on its face, even if we ignore like the exoticism. It's just, it's laziness in the art in and of itself. Okay. So, you know, and if you actually listen to people of color and people on the negative side of these divides, you know, there's a large body of literature and a large body of activism about the ways that exoticism and fetishization hurt individuals
0: in their daily lives, so. So, I, I guess I'll pose this question to the group as a whole: Should we be wary of games that fetishize culture? Should we be, should you know? As I said, one of my favorites is Bora Bora. Should I be saying, okay, I'm going to be done with Bora Bora because I don't want to support institutionalized racism and oppression? Jose, what do you what do you think?
2: So, I mean. Whenever I come across something like this, I, I see it as a learning opportunity, I think, to increase awareness of that culture, right? If you know nothing mm-hmm. about, again, using Puerto Rico, for example, right? If you played that game and you don't know anything about it, you could ask someone who maybe was born there and maybe knows a few things about it, right? To learn, to, to start a conversation. And then maybe every time you play a game like Bora Bora or Puerto Rico, with the people that you're playing with, maybe you can have a conversation about hey, you know, this This is inherently wrong. Like, none of this actually happened. This is kind of messed up right here. I think these games are an opportunity, you know, because they're already made. There's something that people know, and and at least I like to see them right. that way. But there's also, I mean, if you're in a place where you can make a game or where you can talk to game designers and avoid something like that happening in the future, then that's a whole other opportunity, you know, to do something great. And and you know and maybe I don't know if there's going to be a reissue of Puerto Rico you know are there any changes that could make it that like you could still keep you know uh, a game that is that is very well very well liked and make some changes that aren't you know offensive or disrespectful to the history and the culture again that's another opportunity maybe yeah. maybe you, that's a whole other conversation but I think that these are always opportunities to to learning opportunities, conversation starters. Yeah, I mean,
3: I, me being a language language arts and uh, social studies teacher, if I have some background information about the underlying history behind a game, I share it no matter what, because, you know, sometimes against others' wills, um, I, I have no shame, um, but... Yeah, I mean, the, what you were saying about using it as a learning opportunity, every time we play Puerto Rico, if it's with a new player, odds are, if I mention that, by the way, these are not colonists, and bring that up, I, I, I'd say about every two or three games, I have someone say, really? I didn't know that. Okay. And then that's an opportunity to mention it. Do I think that we need to explicitly make a Puerto Rico game with slaves in it? No. But it's, it's good to, because that's a little a little too on the nose. But using the whitewashing of it as a educational tool to say, hey, by the way, kind of whitewashed over. It's still a fun game. We're still going to play it. But here's the reality of the situation. I, I, I think that's kind of beneficial in its own way. Yeah,
1: it's, if board gaming is going to be taken seriously as an art form, then we have to hold it to the same level of criticism that we do for literature and for film. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to have a complex relationship, right? Everything on the list that I found here, Mm -hmm. either because I own it or because it's top 500 or both, um, these are all beautiful pieces of art, right? Right. They are all very fun games. They're all all except for two to four of them, depending on how you count it. Mm Mm-hmm have problems okay and it's okay to say that you know my relationship with this is that i like this this and this but this is not okay and i don't want to see this again
0: yeah to to give that message to game makers basically to say hey we recognize that this is an issue we want you guys to recognize this is an issue also
1: yeah you know aliyah and Ravensburger, Mm -hmm. they have multiple entries here okay you know, going, writing letters to them and saying, like, I love your games, but y'all need to step up your game. This is not okay. Right. Like, right. Like, that's the that's the walk away. You okay. Like, take that from the message, you know. And especially with like the fetishization thing, you know, we, there's a good example of Takanoko on the, right. that fetishizes the Japanese emperor and the bamboo gardens. And, the art style and everything about it, Bombix made a beautiful art. You know, It's a beautiful piece of art. It's a fun game. It's a good entry-level game to bring other players into our hobby. Absolutely. It was an amazing artifact. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that it's not problematic.
0: Right. So there, there's a wide-eyedness that we need to go into our games with that we maybe don't have if we just don't research where is these ideas are coming from in the first place.
3: Now, you did bring up Mombasa earlier. I will say this. They did step up their game a bit there. While the gameplay itself completely ignores the natives who live there, they do have a four-paragraph explanation at the very top of the rules on the front page explaining this is a dark moment in history. Mm -hmm. We are making a conscious decision not to include that in the game, but you should know that the game you're playing is from a dark point in african history and if you want to learn more about that you can read history of modern africa 1800 to the present and they suggest a book to read to learn more about that period so that's at least a step in the right direction
1: yeah um archipelago the rule book also has some of that we can, yes we can talk about those as specific specific points All Right in the case of mombasa like i kind of read that section in the rule book is a cop-out to be perfectly honest.
3: It's a step in the right direction. I yeah, think, it's like the, publisher, right
1: the publisher, the publisher basically tried to give themselves an escape hatch there,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, it's yeah. like-
0: Yeah, so we, so we don't have to talk about this. Let's do this
1: right now. Absolutely nothing in the mechanical structure of Mombasa required it to be colonial period Africa. Right. You could have redone that entire game with a space theme Yeah. or um, modern stock markets you know, change the commodities, like, the fact that they completely... Like, the depth of the whitewash of blood diamonds in Mombasa is revolting, if you know Mm -hmm. anything about King Leopold.
2: To that point, you could make any of these games an entirely fictional narrative and not have to touch on a historical piece at all.
1: Yeah, and in some cases, right, like... um, So... One of them that I have that I think does a really good job is Freedom, the Underground Railroad.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And
1: right. so Freedom is explicitly designed to teach the people playing it about this avenue. And that's a very different beast than, say, Archipelago, which is the other one on the list that engages with colonialism, where Archipelago could be redone with no harm to the game by changing the setting. You could make that corporate cutthroat mm-hmm. or you can, you know, pull it full, full on to fantasy or sci-fi and you wouldn't be able to harm the game as evidenced by the fact the Cosmic Encounter came first.
3: Well, I will say this for that. Um, that's thinking from an American point of view. If you look at sales in general, space theme, those kind, of, uh, any kind of horror theme games, they sell way better in America. But these games are primarily made in Europe. Where historical settings and imperial setting games tend to sell better. So they're creating these games based on what they think is going to sell the best yeah, well, in, their, in their venue. So, so Archipelago is explicitly designed around
1: its setting. Mm-hmm. Um, Christoph Bollinger mm-hmm. ha, um, has talked about this in like the design work and such. Right, Nothing about uh, Archipelago was inadvertent. Right? Yeah. He, he very deliberately picked certain aspects of the design. Um. So it's it's not like he f- sort of face planted into it when he designed right. Archipelago. You know, um, he made very very conscious decisions.
0: So we're speaking about all these games. It seems as if we are as if the the listener uh, knows what we're talking about in terms of the games. Um, in the case of Freedom, the Underground Railroad, this is a game about uh, the Underground Railroad for trafficking slaves up to Canada. It was Canada, right, or up to the I, north. I, I basically, pick liberate basically, right?
1: over traffic in that sense. Say that again. I'd say I would use liberate over traffic in that sense.
0: Well, yeah, I I know I'm using the wrong words because I'm not uh, I'm not very uh, fluent in a lot of this stuff, but I, I do know that what the basic goal of the game is to get you to have a feeling of what it's like to try to make the sacrifices that you have to make in order to free those slaves from their bondage, and in the process. There are many times where you sacrifice one for many kind yeah, of things.
1: Right. So the actual win condition of the game um, is to survive a fixed number of events, then to have freed a certain number of slaves based on difficulty and player count, um, freed them fully to Canada, and to have generated appropriate financial support for the abolition movement. Mm-hmm. You want this to happen before, and I quote... A certain number of slaves are lost into slavery, right? That's the term of art used in the game. Okay. Right. So basically this is one of the areas where the design of freedom has explicitly smoothed over what this means, right? Like basically the plant- what happens in, the g- in-, in game is that the plantations are full and the slave has nowhere to go. And so it's removed from the game. And this is either means that they are sold down into the Caribbean or simply die
3: or killed in an escape attempt or something
1: well so actually that's another thing that never happens in freedom is that slaves are never killed during apprehension right if a slave catcher catches a slave it's sent to a bin which is then sent back to the south and in the process of being sent back to the south they may be lost into slavery so slave catchers never murder slaves in freedom which is important
0: So 100%. it whitewashes it a little bit, also in that in that sense. But it does create a, a well a lived experience mm-hmm. of what it's like to. I mean, you're only you're you're you're, <laughs> you're dropping people yeah. down into like you're a cube now. I mean, that's yeah, it's really depersonalizing. But at the same time, maybe that's the only way to get that information or that message yeah. to uh, the larger group uh, of people who and- maybe don't know anything about.
1: Yeah, I've never played a game of freedom where somebody hasn't had to get up from the table and walk around and just sort of shake it off.
3: The, uh, the designer of the game, I spoke to him because I played um, a uh, preview copy of the game about two years before it came out while he was still working out the rules. And I played a game at uh, Gen Con one year and we asked him, why are the slaves standard color brown, standard color like tan wood cubes, mm-hmm. he said. We went back and forth on it. You know, to take the Puerto Rico route of making them mahogany-colored cubes, but he said that was a little too on the nose. This game is already can already get emotional enough without making it that on the nose by making the cubes mahogany. So he said we just said delete. He said also they're less expensive to produce. And the game's already expensive enough to produce.
2: Yeah.
3: So there was, was a financial decision on that and a um, a moral
0: feeling decision mm-hmm. on it to make it a little less on the nose. And I believe, David, you told me that they opted not to use meeples because of the emotional attachment we might have to, me- have to meeples yeah, instead of to... Yeah,
1: he's, he's mentioned in his early playtests, you know, he you know tried it with meeples and it was like it L- broke okay. people. Just broke
0: people. Yeah, a little too on the nose again. All right. And so that that brings us to a topic that an idea that I've thought was very important in board games. You know, you talked about the categories and those categories that do it well seem to bring us an experience of or an understanding of oppression and colonialism that we didn't understand before. And um, Francisco Ortega Grimaldi wrote a paper called Lessons Learned from Board Games. He wrote this paper in 2008. And the basic premises of the paper that he put forth are games are metaphors of culture instead of being output of culture. No, no, eh. Let me re- re-say that. Games are not metaphors of culture. They are instead output of culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also said that cultural outputs in the firm, in the form of board games can induce interest in the players as long as they assist with the recognition or discovery of identities through which the player can project emotions and fantasies. So what he's, he's arguing for is a lived experience of games. Instead of them being purely recreational objects, they become active art in which we participate with what's going on. And that plays perfectly into our, our goal of talking about games as therapeutic and educational tools because it places the player in a situation of being a socially aware gamer. So you said... Nippon and what was the other one? Uh, Tokaido. Tokaido, which
1: does still in its art style have elements of fetishization, right? Like the exact when you look at the specifics of like the the way that humans are stylized in the game, it's not entirely free of its own exoticism. Um, But the overall experience of Tokaido is to pull somebody into the the pilgrimage that is the trip to Edo.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: right and tokaido is uh, deeply non-confrontational while still somehow mechanically being excruciatingly cutthroat yes um
0: this is a, a sort of a, it's a worker placement game mm-hmm. and it's a journey i don't know how you how you would explain the game to someone who's never played it uh,
1: well, the rule book actually gives you the good setting description. Um, I don't have the rule book at hand here. Sure. But, um, uh, it talks about it, right? So in in this period of Japan, there was a, a standard spiritual pilgrimage. between, And, you know, Edo being the, the end goal on one side. And the goal of Tokaido is basically to have the best trip, Right. You're right. You want to eat good foods. You want to meet interesting people that will enrich your life. You want to donate to the temples on the way. You want to interact with the countryside, Mm -hmm. painting murals, you know, meeting the farmers. This is the thing, right? Like to deeply live the experience of what it is. Mm -hmm to to well, engage in this program. why don't we take that, mm-hmm. for, and take person also does that for a moment means. and acknowledge you know the elephant in the room that uh, um, here down in Atlanta right, right so we have like three white dudes uh, yeah, middle class or better in heterosexual marriages sitting around talking about oppression
0: yeah. Like, yeah let's
1: just put that on the table
0: and and of course this way uh, Puerto Rican from <laughs> New York
1: yeah um,
0: well not yeah. from New York
1: in currently in New York no. um,
0: from Puerto Rico living in New York
1: yeah, and, and it gets even better. Right, I'm sitting here talking about oppression, but what do I do? I am a software engineer for Cisco Systems, right? So I write network security software for a living. Mm-hmm. Um, even better throughout most of college, I was one of these like hardline uh, physical science and math guys who gave zero credit to the concept of social sciences and, poli- and international relations and power politics. Um, I didn't get schooled on this until I was deep into my profession as an engineer and I got involved in the security work that I currently do and was just sort of brutally and unmercifully made to face the fact that all the interesting questions revolve around people right like security is an issue because of how people behave everything in everything that I do materially is would not exist if we could solve the human problem first all <laughs> right and so you know so i've i've done work where the the political relationship between china and the u.s and russia and israel and these other countries was at the core of the problem of what i was trying to work on you know and so i had to suck it up and learn and then just over the course of the you know last several years, just sort of waking up to the fact that this is all out there, and you know, like I per- through my dad's side of the family, I'm a second generation American. My grandparents were immigrants; they came through Ellis Island. And growing up, I'm the youngest of four, so there's a big gap between me and my older sibling, half siblings. Um, so I was raised in the sort of standard white South California context. At the same time, my dad was a World War II veteran. You know, he was the first in our family born in the U.S. And he grew up in the Great Depression. He was two when the stock market crashed and he grew up in the Great Depression. And he faced off against Klansmen and all of this awful stuff, right? Like He's this weird, for me, this weird mix of both like the standard father and someone who lived through this thing, which is a full generation removed from most people my age and this direct conduit to it, you know? So he talked, he lived in the Swedish neighborhood in Chicago growing up, which was right next to the German. And so he would talk about the fact like the German bakers had to keep sign like American flags and signage on their glass. So that way people wouldn't just shatter them and loot them. Wow. Right. Because, you know, the American relationship with Germany was extremely complicated, to say the least, at the time. There were a lot of people who, unfortunately, were very pro-Nazi within our country. And there were a lot of people who were vehemently anti-Nazi. And so Germans weren't properly white at the time. And my family, being Swedish, most people didn't bother to distinguish Swedes from Germans. So my father caught it as a side. English was not his native language. So he he raises me on these stories at the same time as I'm coming up, you know, in the 80s in L.A. from a position of what becomes massive privilege. It was and all of this. And I still didn't get it until I was almost 25.
0: And what did it take?
1: Uh, dumb luck, I think. (laughs) I think I just, something managed to get through the shell of my own ignorance, and I can't even remember what at this point. Okay. You know, a decade plus later. Was
2: it Brian pointing out what the cues actually represented? (laughs) 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 Yeah, that's the origin story of Dave right there. (laughs) I mean, but, I mean like down. I love to hear the fact that uh, like when Brian said that I love that idea that people came to play a game and he was like let's take a moment let me let me make sure you you, you take something with you you know other than this embarrassing loss I'm about to hand you. Oh, no, 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 no. You,
3: you sir, have obviously never played many games with me before. I'm going right. to drop some knowledge on you so that whenever you do deliver this horrifying loss to me, you don't
0: think I'm a complete waste of intelligence. Ah, gotcha. <laughs> I gotcha. I actually
3: did the same thing with
1: Archipelago.
0: Yeah, and we got to play Archipelago the other night, which was fascinating for me because I'd never played Archipelago. And it it does a fairly good job of at least getting you involved in the concept of what's going on. Yeah, so
1: Archipelago is a fairly deep worker placement game. Um, You've got two different kinds of workers in effect, right? So one does action selection, and then a set of workers that actually engage in activities. So your actions are limited by the secondary kind of worker. Um, The setting uh, is anywhere from... You know, just the the moments after Columbus, quote unquote, discovers um, the Caribbean to 1797, which is the founding of Tahiti uh, from a European context, because obviously people had been living there. So discovery is an awful word in that sense. Um, and the art of archipelago does nothing to distinguish, you know, like Caribbean from Polynesian, which good grief, um, or, and it does nothing really to distinguish the time period. It's a span of several hundred years as well, right? So that's one of the ways that Archipelago's design falls down. Um, and then, but on the flip side of that uh, is also right in the beginning of the manual, the it talks about, you know, quote unquote, a mission of peace and benevolence. And it's like all the standard colonial crap. And it talks about how you have to balance, you know, unbridled industrialization and greed with care for the locals. And it's and the language is itself paternalistic and also problematic.
0: And so, in terms of the game, the the guy who made the game didn't intend for it to be uh, developing an understanding of what we do as colonials towards a, a native culture.
1: Um, I've never heard him talk about it exactly um, and expressly. Um, there are clearly elements in the manual and in the design that are supposed to make you think about the balance, about extra- the extraction of value from a place versus respect for the people who live there, right? They do explicitly call it out in some, in some places. Um, but the exact way that that's presented is clearly not free of issue.
3: Okay. I think that's a good segue into the game that we played. Dog Eat Dog. Dog Eat Dog. Because that, that speaks exactly to your point. Um, we, we did play um, a role-playing game, or a storytelling
0: game more or less, um, this this weekend called Dog Eat Dog. This is um, a, a game of imperialism and assimilation in the Pacific Islands, and it's uh, uh, published slash produced by Liam... Luang Burke, I hope I'm saying his name correctly. This game,
3: <clears throat> it it is specifically designed to address exactly those issues. Um, yeah. To give you the uh, the blurb for it, it is a game of colonialism, colonialism, and its consequences. As a group, you work together to describe the conquest of one of the hundreds of small islands. In the Pacific Ocean, defining the customs of the natives and the mores of the outsiders arriving to claim it. One player assumes the role of the occupation, playing the military, um, their quizzling government, and whatever jaded tourists and shrewd businessmen are interested in a not-quite-pacified territory. Every other player plays individual natives, each trying in their own way to come to terms with the new regime. Through a series of scenes, you play out the inevitably conflicted relationship between the two parties, deciding what the colonizers do to maintain control, which natives assimilate, and which run amok, and who ends up owning the island in the end. All right, so to give you the blurb about the game from the beginning of the book, Dog Eat Dog is a game of colonialism and its consequences. As a group, you work together to describe the conquest of one of hundreds of small islands in the Pacific Ocean, defining the customs of the natives and the mores of the outsiders arriving to claim it. One player then assumes the role of the Occupation Force, playing their capable military, their Quisling government, and whatever jaded tourists and shrewd businessmen are interested in a not-quite-pacified territory. All the other players play individual natives, each trying in their own ways to come to terms with the new regime. The game begins when the war ends. Through a series of scenes, you play out the inevitably conflicted relationship between the two parties, deciding what the colonizers do to maintain control, which natives assimilate and which run amok, and who ends up owning the island in the end. So the interesting thing about this is the first thing you have to do is figure out who's the occupation. And the way you do that is by having a discussion at the table about who is the richest, who makes the most money. So that was easy for us. Um we were playing with a couple. Uh Woody is a therapist and I'm a teacher, so we pretty much narrowed ourselves right yeah, out Yeah, we're not in that, we're
0: in that running there.
3: And they're a couple, so they both knew automatically who made the most money, so that was an easy conversation. The rules do explicitly say that most people skip that step altogether, but it's an important step because the person who makes the most money is... You know, it, having that discussion up front about who is the most dominant financially kind of sets the tone. Well, the mean, it also
0: forces the person who's going to take that role to recognize that they are in that role, you know, right. in, in a more lived way, I think. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. For me, just reading that made it, made me feel uncomfortable just thinking, wow, like if, okay, what if there's two therapists or two teachers here? And now we have to discuss which of us is actually more poor like who has more debt you know like you could get that granular right. if all of you right. were kind of just getting by that's a really uncomfortable conversation
3: yeah yeah it, it, it's a really uncomfortable game um <laughs> it was we so it, in ours we decided you know you can technically take this game and put it in any setting it says in the book that you can you can have um ali- you can have space colonizers landing on a planet and, and you know taking a "Quote unquote," savage um, set of aliens on another planet and colonizing their planet. You could have the Peace Corps showing up, um, a bunch of you know rich white kids showing up with their uh, technology to you know educate the masses in whatever land they happen to live in. Or you could stick with the default setting, which is um, Pacific Islanders with European um colonizers we decided to stick with that because that's the one that across all the reviews that i've read was the one that kind of s- s- made it feel more real and got the got the richer experience out of it so we decided to stick with that um so our friend who was the colonizer um set up his his colony set up the the we all as a group came up with the qualities of that colony then the qualities of our native tribe and then we each developed our own one unique persona i was the strongest woody was the builder the of the island he, he built a bridge to our volcano god yes and um our friend luke uh he played the fisherman he was the greatest fisher on the
0: island one of the beautiful things about uh, the way that this works, so we're all kind of individualized among ourselves. But of course, when it comes to the occupation that is coming along and looking in at what we're doing, they make no distinction between us as individuals. You know, even to the point that uh, um, our occupation guy was able to, uh, on on several occasions, call us by names that weren't weren't our own. <laughs> yes, um,
3: and he mispronounced our names, and whenever we tried to correct him, he Corrected us back and told us, no, he's pretty sure that's how you pronounce it. Um. (laughs) Of course, one of his qualities was that he was hyper-religious and was there trying to convert us to his religion. Um, But that was a secondary aspect. The primary thing is they wanted to mine a precious metal from our underwater volcano, which houses the god we worship. So (laughs) we each in turn... Um, at once we had our had our sides defined took turns playing out scenes i started then woody then luke then chuck as the occupation played um, his occupation scene and we went through the rounds that way we would just keep going back and forth until either all of the islanders ran out of tokens which i'll explain in a moment or the occupation ran out of tokens each of us started with three tokens and the occupation starts with two tokens per, per villager plus one. In order to outright, in a scene, decide he's going to kill a villager, he has to spend two coins. This gives the occupation enough coins so that at the beginning of the game, in his first round, he could kill everyone on the island by spending two tokens and having one left. They do say in the rules that they explicitly made it that way so that if the occupation decides in the first round just to kill everyone on the island, that, that's a conversation about why that person made that particular choice knowing the lack of fun he was creating for the, everyone else at the table.
0: Right, and luckily that is not what happened in our game. No.
3: Uh, Chuck is more insidious than that. Uh, <laughs> so the reason why you have these tokens is that because at the end of each player's scene, each player starts their own scene, other villagers can come into the scene if if the person who owns the scene allows it. But the occupation can come into a scene without asking for permission because they're the occupation,
0: um, right? So, so Brian and I could be having a conversation, and it's a conversation about you know whether or not we're going to help the occupation or something. But if the occupation suddenly comes up, well, okay, yeah, we're just talking, you know, it's it's not not a big deal. We, we you know they could come in anytime they wanted to,
3: and then or Luke as the other as the third villager could say can I jump in on this scene and if we say mm, no we, 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 we're pretty sure we know where we want the scene to go then he doesn't get to come in or we can say yeah sure come on head in the water's fine <laughs> Chuck says hi I'm here now whether you like it or not now the reason why you don't necessarily want the occupation in is because if you two as villagers have a conflict then you get to not only use your villages traits to add dice to your dice pool But you also get to use your own personal um, trait. Like if I'm the strongest one there is and Woody and I are in a fist fight, I get to throw an extra die in because I'm the strongest one there is. But the minute the occupation comes in, our personal traits don't matter because they don't see us as individuals. It doesn't matter that I'm the strongest one there is. They have guns. Yeah. (laughs) And authority. So at the end of an individual round... You go through the list of rules and you always start off with the exact same first rule. The villagers are inferior to the occupation. That's the first rule. You have rule. to
0: follow that rule to the teeth.
3: Yes. At the end of that, at the end of my turn for instance, after I got through telling my little vignette and ending the scene and all the players have to agree that the scene is over, we look at every villager who's in the scene and say did you follow the rule? The occupation is the final arbiter of whether they agree or disagree that the villagers followed the rule. If the villager did not follow the rule, they have to give the occupation a chip. If, however, the villager did follow the rules, the occupation gives them a chip, which is why they have so many. That's not a big deal in the first round. You're only going to lose one chip. The occupation will lose two or three at most, depending on how many villagers are in the scene. But at the end of all that, you have to decide what the new rule is based on the moral of the story. And it's always something negative to the villagers. What did the villagers learn about their role in the game based on what the occupation showed favoritism toward, what they punished, etc.? And then you make a new rule based on that. The next player's scene, you have to try to follow both of the rules. And then chips change hands. And it will keep going back and forth like that until it gets to the occupation's turn. Then they get to start a scene. And they get to decide if anyone comes in or not. No one can butt in on an occupation scene if they don't want them to. All the power is in the occupation's hands in this game. Our game ended on the occupation's first story turn. Yes. After we'd all had our turns. He decided that um, he was his, his goal was to drill down into the gog, which... I thought, well, okay, you can try that. Everyone who's tried to go face to face and speak to the god, it has not ended well for them because it's a magma-filled volcano. Woody was just. Um, what, what was your opinion on that?
0: Oh, on the on the uh, the drilling into the volcano? Yeah. I, okay, so as a as one of the natives, my continual way of dealing with things was to reframe everything the occupation said in terms of our religion and our ways of of doing things. So in a sense, I was uh, in some way trying to create a connection with the occupation because I was following the run rule that I was supposed to be inferior to the occupation. But at some very subtle level, I was playing um, kind of like I was building some kind of reasonable uh, communication bridge between myself and the occupation. So my feeling was I was going to reframe all this and I reframed what they were doing in terms of they were speaking to our volcano God. And if that was what they wanted to do, then I saw no reason why, because our volcano God was totally omniscient. He was, you know, he could take care of himself. So why should I worry about that? So I I went along with the occupation in almost every way or shape or form I could while sort of codifying everything they said to my own language. Yes, and Luke was being the uh,
3: the. He was practical. He was the practical, scientific
0: almost uh, in terms of his logic and his way of doing things. I was much more spiritual in my basis,
3: and I was I was kind of the in between person. Luke lost more chips than anyone else because Chuck kept wanting things that were not necessarily practical, like taking all the food for the for the feast and not inviting everyone just inviting the most able body which meant that there would be no food for anyone else so Luke hid some food away so luke lost more chips than anyone else he became embittered by the end because his his culture um, assimilated well i assimilated pretty well because holy crap they drilled down into the god and they they made our god be quiet our god hasn't been quiet in ages they've they've appeased our god better than we ever could yeah so I figured their God had to have been more more powerful than ours, which was. I, I tried to argue that point, but Chuck was really really insidious about it, and ended up turning my character toward his his way of thinking. Woody, on the other hand, he assimilated all gangbusters. He he was practically worshiping at the feet of Seren, Seren
0: Ray by the end of it. Seren Ray was <laughs> the god of the occupation because they were. Uh, <laughs> They were hyper-religious, and so their goal was to transform our religion to theirs. And I just kind of bought into it. um, To I did not play any kind of rebellious role at all in this group. Um, As the uh, totally like I, I I could feel like the identity of our culture is totally going away, and it's being zapped into this. But at the same time, I could also I could play the game of reframing everything into. Okay, what they're saying is this, and what we're saying is this, and it ba- it matches this way. So it was a way of of kind of taking on the role of the oppressed in such a way that it's like, okay, I'll accept that, sure. Let's see what that's like. Well, I'll accept that. Okay. So at the end of the game, basically, if if all of the villagers, as as
3: the various villagers run out of tokens, they go they do what's called running amok, which didn't happen to any of us. It came very close with Luke. Um, if you run out of chips at the end of the current scene, you must do something horrifyingly violent and die by the end of the scene. If however, um, the occupation runs out of chips, which is what happened to Chuck. Cause we all followed the rules in, in the last round. Um, they leave the Island to us, but we're forever changed. We, we gained autonomy, but we had completely assimilated into their culture with Luke being the embittered one because he didn't quite like it, but there was nothing he could do because he was following the, the flow of the rest of the Island um so unlike mombasa which kind of it it talks about how you're going not mombasa uh archipelago Archipelago, which which explicitly talks about going into these islands but it talks about it frames it as though you're going there to do good and you have to balance how you treat the natives so that they come out happy with you and appeased this game explicitly describes that there is no way that you're going to leave, their, leave this um, culture untarnished. Either they're all going to rebel against you and die horrifying and painful deaths, or you're going to destroy their culture altogether. The minute an occupation sets foot on an island, they have forever changed that culture. Not always for the best. And that's kind of the theme of the game, is that unlike Archipelago... You can think that you're doing good all you want to, but you can't control that you're doing good or not.
1: Yeah, archipelago definitely frames everything as some kind of benevolent paternalism. Yeah, right Like the end game triggers if you bother to sit down and think about the cards, like what they say, it's like one is that the entire archipelago has been explored, right? There's no place left for the natives to hide. You know mm-hmm. one there's a set of cards that are basically infrastructure buildouts. Right, like you've built so many ports or towns or churches that you're everywhere, effectively.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, McDonald's on every corner. Yeah, one of the cards is that a certain number of resources have been depleted, so the bank has none in reserve. Oh, it's important, by the way, in archipelago that every single resource is limited, so the bank represents effectively the total carrying capacity for resources from the island. So one of the endgame triggers is that you have completely pillaged a certain number of resources and the island can no longer support it. Like it's gone. There's no more.
0: Right. You, the, the resources, mm-hmm. it's, the, the, it's not a renewable resource. It's already, it, that's it.
1: Yeah, it's gone. You know. So it's like everything in the game is framed that way. Like if you sit down and think about it, it's like, oh, this is awful. Like I am the bad guy here. Every player is an awful person. They're, you're engaging in the abject s- subjugation of a people. And you're doing it for your own benefit, and
3: as long as you can keep them appeased, so that they don't notice that's what you're doing, you can win the game. Hey, uh-huh. yeah. The only way the only way the good guys win is if
1: the players all lose. There's a way that all the players can lose by a rebellion occurring.
0: So I love this thing that uh, uh, Liam Burke says at the end of uh, when he's trying to explain. Uh, judgment inferiority in relation to the dog-eat-dog dog game. He says, It turns out it really doesn't matter how cruel or well-meaning you are. Colonization is still about believing your superiority over someone else, and it's incredibly difficult to build a functional relationship on that basis, even if both parties are trying as hard as they can. So go ahead and play the Peace Corps or the United Nations or the Heavenly Host if you want to. The game should still work. A bad situation doesn't change how good people want to be, but wanting to be good doesn't change a bad situation. I thought that was very telling of, of the game we experienced. Intentions yes.
1: are important, but not magic.
2: Exactly. Right. Did you get to play this at all, Josue? No, I read through the manual, but I didn't get to play it. Okay. And I did read um, a great review that uh, Brian sent me on, I forgot the name of the oh, website.
0: Shut,
3: shut Up and Sit Down. Yep. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. Shut
2: Up and Sit Down, They did. they did a review of this. I
3: yeah. would have paid money to watch them play the game. Yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and if, you've to, seen, if
3: you've ever seen their video reviews, you'll know what I'm talking about.
2: <laughs> you know, it was amazing um, just to to follow through. You know what they wrote, and you know to the point you were making at the end. They, in the in the manual, it does say. You know, you know, one one endgame state is you know for the occupation to run out of tokens, and for them to run out of tokens, the everyone else has to always be inferior so to win you have to at all times be inferior and of course when you nobody have to wins. lose yeah, no, of course, yeah. nobody yeah. wins yeah. Yeah. so i don't know how
0: this this game does a good job at expressing or helping people feel maybe in a very fictionalized context what it's like to be oppressed or to be to play the role of the occupation And perhaps as professionals, that's what we're looking for in a sense to teach people what what some of these cultures went through. And obviously games are always going to break down to being a minimization of a very terrible situation. So that caveat should be placed out there no matter what, whether it's Puerto Rico or whatever. We're always minimizing in some way the experience. And we were not going to go through and do anything to cause that experience to happen to ourselves. But it's important to educate ourselves somewhere And and to that end, we need to have games that help us to to bring that to the public. And I love the idea that Brian said. You know, when he sits down to play a game that's like Puerto Rico or something, he'll he'll explain what he knows about it. So we're we're kind of called upon to to bring our experience to others who might already be treating this as if it's nothing. You know, it's nothing more than a game right now.
1: Yeah, and we should note that there's you always get pushback from the community, right? Like when you start to bring in issues of social justice people who's come from positions of privilege, they flip out and they're like, well, why are you, why are you, right? Like, I'm not a bad guy. Why are you bringing this to me? Why are you, this is your baggage, not mine. Right. right. We, and that's, that's the, the pleasant response. Like they get much, obviously get much nastier than that.
0: Right. It's part of the intu- institutionalized side of it where it's, it's, it's already part of the culture. It doesn't, there's no place outside of the culture that exists for it anymore. So that's, that's where the, the fetishization comes in. Um, I did want to tell you guys about a article that I read by, uh, Sarah Lichtenwalter. She is, um, a, a teacher and she wrote a, a paper on teaching oppression through Jenga. And basically what she did was she wanted to use Jenga as a means of explaining and helping people understand what it's like to be in the outside group. So they played Jenga and they played Jenga according to the normal rules. They spent a phase talking about what oppression is and what, um, how power structure plays a role in things. And then some people were, were identified to be the judges of the Jenga game. The Jenga game was basically okay. For every block that you're able to put on top of the structure, you're going to get a point. Um, However, uh, we're only going to play so that you play left-handed. So we're already favoring one group, which is those people who, who are left-handed. The judges are taken aside, and she tells the judges, okay, I want you to grade biased towards the left-handed group. So whatever you can do to usurp a point from them based on something they did wrong, you're going to do it and constantly give bias towards the left-handed group. And so what happens is the rest of the class are all watching this and everybody's getting to this kind of realization that hey that's not fair and that's not okay. Meanwhile, the left-handed group come back comes back and says they didn't really see any um any oppression whatsoever. They they knew they were playing the game the way they're supposed to. They were playing it to the best of their ability and they were the ones who deserved to win. Meanwhile, the right-handed group are all complaining that they've been oppressed in some way, shape, or form, and then at the end of this, the teacher says, "Okay, now you need to write a write a paper about the oppression you felt or about what you learned from this experience." This is with a simple game of Jenga, and this is the way they turned it into an educational process. I found that pretty fascinating. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah,
3: I'm, I'm no sorry. I, I got caught spacing out, thinking, okay how am i going to put this into my game because we're we're reading the book while the world watched okay and um about uh the um bombing of a church in alabama during the civil rights movement that killed four girls and you know who were in the church bathroom Mm um and the one survivor one of the survivors of that telling her story because it was four of her friends who were in that bathroom um and we're talking about civil rights with a, a and a lot of my kids are they, they kind of have a basic understanding of it, but some of them think that, you know, why are we still talking about this? This was ages ago because, you know, seventh graders always think that anything that happened more than four years ago is forever.
1: Well, I mean, let's point out <laughs> the fact that there are grown folk in this country in their 50s and 60s yeah. who are old enough to know better because they were alive back then and lived it that uh, they still say that, oh, well, racism is over
0: yeah that's that's true but i was one of those seventh graders who didn't pay attention to history because why would i pay attention to history and
1: also we teach history badly we teach it as a series of unconnected vignettes and Mm -hmm. we don't teach it as the interconnected web of structures that led to the modern world
0: that's important so that's, that's one of my
3: favorite favorite things too i have i have teachers who um tell me that the most they ever learned about history Was after they got out. It was when they got into college, and just after that, they started picking up books like um, "Lies My Teacher Told Me" or "Don't Know Much About History," that gives just little vignettes about it, but it ties it all together. Mm -hmm. This is this happened because of this. That happened because of this. That happened because of this. And if it hadn't been for this earlier thing, this wouldn't have happened. This directly led to this, and it's most of the people I I met in college who went to who, who were in my history classes said. They felt cheated by high school because high school taught them this nice, pretty um, conceptualized version of history that they just couldn't relate to, because it just seemed like it was just a bunch of a bunch of high-level governmental things, and the, the the personal history just felt like it was completely pulled out of it. But of course, they say that they don't do that because they feel like high schoolers are not mature enough to handle the true darkness of history um without having some kind of major crisis
1: yeah we're actually uh we're (laughs) my wife and i are struggling this with uh with this for our son right now because he's six Mm -hmm. and he is just beginning to be exposed to the civil war and all of the implications of that and some of the other things and it's like well how in the world am i gonna teach this this stuff correctly right like how do i short circuit the the nonsense that was put in me that took you know two decades to pull out and fix like but he's still six how am i gonna not scar him for life
3: Mm -hmm.
2: well that's that's kind of the beauty of why the hamilton musical is such a big hit right now right it's it's transmitting uh, a message, right? It's talking about history in a way that nobody had ever talked about it before. And I think that's what these games are doing, right? They allow us to do something and see it in a slightly different way that that just isn't possible. You know, You, David, you said, you know, like some people should know better, right? But um, like they, they, maybe they've never had... They've never had anything that even closely resemble that experience, right? So it's hard to mm-hmm. to do that. And maybe maybe a game like Doggy Dog, Eat Dog or, or or any of the ones we've mentioned are the closest. some of these people have ever gotten to that, and that's a, a stepping stone. I don't know why some people you know see something horrible happening and, and are able to empathize more than others, but different people need the information presented in, in different ways. It's hard. It's a, it's, I don't know. It, it, it's a real challenge, and I think it, it speaks to, and I'm,
0: I'm not going to get too deep into it, but Kohlberg's stages of moral development suggests that this is not about um, a genetic predisposition towards being um, unjust towards others. It's, it's about whether or not you experience things along the trajectory of your life that will help you to learn the difference in various moral states of mind. And so... I can't recall the study, unfortunately, but basically, uh, these children were exposed to studies or, or they were exposed to stories that were unfair. And they were initially believing that the position of the person was fair, and then they had to sort of be explained. They had to have an explanation of why this was an unfair situation. And as they started to see this was an unfair situation, they started to change their way of thinking. And then when they were exposed to a similar story thereafter, they were able to recognize that, oh, this is one of those places that I didn't understand before that I understand now. However, to speak to, trying to speak to a six-year-old, there's a cognitive level that you have to deal with also, and and he's not in uh, maybe an abstract enough phase of thinking to really get and understand how far-reaching the implications of the Civil War are. And, and I don't know how you present that to a child because, you know, a child is in the state of kind of um, peaceful oblivion for the most part, they're learning about the world, but they're not ready to learn about a lot of the, the atrocities that we experience. And so I think there's a little bit of requirement that it has to be backed off from what it is and then built up as we grow older. You know, it's unfortunate that we have, have come up in a culture that idolizes Christopher Columbus because we spent all that time in high school what a great guy Christopher Columbus was for bringing us to America and that, you know that whole silliness but maybe we're not able to totally get what it was that Christopher Columbus did when we are children
1: yeah the great the great genocide
0: exactly um you know he, he we can't get too far into that history yeah, but it, i mean he treated it, the natives i mean he he rode them like horses
1: yeah uh the this ju- was in his journals. Co- yeah, Columbus's journals are disgusting if you read them, and you know,
3: which makes me feel awkward because in elementary school, I played Columbus in a in, in a play, didn't write it on, um, didn't write any of my classma- classmates like um, horses, which I personally feel with some of them as I've known them growing up was a missed opportunity. Because <laughs> some of them are still kind of jackasses, right?
2: right.
1: <laughs> yes, but yay for Indigenous Peoples Day and down with Columbus Day.
2: Damn Absolutely. Skippy. Yes. Damn Skippy. <laughs> um, you know, one thing that I do on you know, I've been doing with with this idea of uh, geek therapy and it's you know it's another website, is taking media that is already popular and shining a light on how it resembles things that are actually happening. So I mean, a lot of kids are seeing superhero stories played out or Star Wars, right? And mm-hmm. there's all these parallels that you can make to things that really happened, you know, whether they were inspired by true events or not. You know, just just like Brian said, you know, I'm going to point things out, you know, when when I see the opportunity. We can do that with all these fictional things that maybe our kids are already being exposed to, right? But my... My niece's encyclopedic knowledge of Star Wars will become very handy to, to talk about a lot of more serious issues. I think that's
0: true And I' started thinking about this and you know I've never been kind of one to shy away from from discussion or awareness of, of racism but I haven't realized how, how well Hollywood is doing at sort of putting an undercurrent of understanding of that into our our geek culture because obviously X-Men points to that, um, yeah. Harry Potter and well, the Mudbloods point to that.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, Star Trek points to that. X Men and Superman. Uh, these these comics were designed explicitly as vehicles for teaching this. Yes. Right. So Simon and Schuster with the dis- the construction of Superman. Right. Like the very first Superman was a Nazi. Anybody know that?
0: Mm-hmm. Did yeah. not.
1: Ubermensch. Yep. And they they didn't get what they wanted out of it, so they flipped him into this sort of canonicalized American ideal, and they used him as a venue to talk about all of the original Superman comics are about facing anti-Semitism. That's what they're really about. Mm -hmm. It's two New York, New Jersey area Jews using the tropes of American identity to defeat the pervasive anti-Semitism of their era. Like, that's an ex- explicit part of what they were doing with it. And, you know, Stan Lee's talked about the X-Men, right? Mm-hmm. The X-Men are designed specifically, in many cases, to take the sting out of the sort of the personalization of issues of racism and provide us a vehicle that we can use to talk about that.
0: It abstracts it, which yes. is a, a kind of a comment I've made about gaming in the past, which is that gaming abstracts our our reality in some way so that we can actually bring it down to a level that it's discussable. The sad thing about something like Puerto Rico when we see it through that that language is that it's just so abstracted that we're only barely discussing it when we play Puerto Rico, whereas when we play something like Dog Eat Dog or even Archipelago, we might get more uh, placed in the light of what is actually happening.
1: Yeah, it's there's whenever you model a uh... A real world system, you necessarily lose some fidelity, right? That's the definite intrinsic part of the model. But the if you do a model correctly, you deliberately give up some aspects. So that way, you can emphasize others to understand those that you retain. And in the case of Puerto Rico, we have a model that was done in in important ways, without conscientious understanding of what was being lost and produces a missed opportunity for education versus archipelago. The model was done very, very deliberately and we can talk about whether it succeeds or not,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and we can talk about the fragility of that success, but it's, it's not accidental. Right. You know, it, it produces something which can be a, a, a teaching tool, you know, like what do you can relate? Cause I was using it explicitly like this with us, um, you know, so was it Friday night? Yes. It was Friday night. night um, so two nights back now. And, you know, so I was Woody and, and Susie and another friend of ours, Hunter, none of them have ever played Archipelago who hadn't been, deal, hadn't faced this. And I, whenever I teach Archipelago, I shove people's faces in this.
3: <laughs> yeah. Like you do.
1: Yeah. It, it's just, it's <laughs> too good of an opportunity, right? Like, you know, you go over you go over the mechanics of how the end game works, and then you just kind of point out the fact that all of these represent some sort of pervasive predatory use of the indigenous peoples in their island.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You talk about how sc- you know, like that's okay. There's the end game. And now let's talk about scoring, and then you're like, <laughs> scoring is the mirror image of that, right? Like you win in all cases by being the most brutal capitalist.
0: Yes, cuz I was doing a terrible job at being a brutal capitalist in that game. I could not get an engine going whatsoever. <laughs> you
1: know, and if you're if you're not conscientious with Archipelago, then you can lose this opportunity and that's an issue of the fragility of its model, right? You can easily sit down and play this and not have to think about it. But you have this mechanism in front of you for teaching this stuff and you you force constantly, you know, force everybody's face into it um they make it so they can't look away but then at the same time you the game forces you to be complicit in the systems of oppression
0: mm-hmm. it rewards the systems yeah. of oppression basically
1: yeah i mean if you if you if you try not to use them you will get screwed you yes. you can be completely stranded right like just with nowhere to go like nothing useful going on and if you engage in them, you'll win. As you said that,
0: so it comes down to it, these are tools. Mm-hmm. If we if we look at it, instead of looking at it from... I, I like what Josue said earlier, you know, that we mm-hmm. can look at it from the perspective that here we have this media that we can use to teach these things. And even bringing it down to Puerto Rico, and, and Archipelago, um, as long as we are conscious of what we're doing in the game, it can be of value. And if there's no previous consciousness of it, then maybe it's up to those of us who have realized it to bring that up in our discussion. I worry about whether or not it means that we're going to like, every time we come to the game table, we're going to lecture people on (laughs) (laughs) oppression and gaming. Right. So Woody, did it feel like a lecture? No, no, no. But I mean, you were teaching the game.
1: Yeah, right. So we're teaching the game and I try to make it so that way every time I teach, you know, like we start with the setting. And we, you know, I I will read from the, from the rule book, that opening paragraph, because it's beautiful and it's double speak, two-facedness and, you know, just snidely sort of interject the truth under breath when I'm reading through. Mm -hmm. And then we start talking about mechanics. We're like, oh, and here's how it works. And then you're like, did anybody notice this? Oh, now you never will be able to unsee it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's true. You know, you know, I want to
2: I, mean, I, w- I want to comment on like something I, th- I think it was Dave you said it earlier too that the like our ability to be able to be in a position to even see these games or see the oppression or see ourselves oppressed right um, and for I've I've actually never played Puerto Rico I've <laughs> always been afraid to because I didn't know exactly what it was doing with the place i was born um, oh
1: it's a, it's pretty badly and it's disrespectful <laughs> yeah yeah
2: and um my my grandparents like immigrated and they you know to puerto rico and they grew up you know on farmlands and they wouldn't call themselves um slaves, right? They wouldn't identify as such. But the lives that they had, the stories I've heard, if I saw those things, like my my apprehension is related to seeing those true stories being played out there. And there's always a discomfort. I've, I actually still haven't done it. And I've never... I buy games all the time. Like, t- t- you know, I have no... <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where every time I see it, I'm like, I should pick that game up, but do I want to? And I don't know. There's always a discomfort there and it's something to to keep in mind about especially stories that are actually representative of things that really happened and and how there's there's people who it means something you know it means something very different for them with the the few times that brian kept saying like oh it's too on the nose i was like but come on it's a game and then as the more i think about puerto rico i'm like oh yeah that's why i've never bought it (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah with a lot of this stuff right like if you you have to understand your audience right like yeah. it's really important not to minimize and trivialize the actual experiences that people already are bringing right so like yeah. you know i have friend so i have a math degree and during during undergraduate um several of the people in my degree program were puerto rican and the first time puerto rico came out uh was when we were finishing our degrees mm-hmm. and so I never got to play it with them but man they were not fans
0: <laughs> so they could see it immediately as the whitewash that it was yeah
1: it was you know like one of them was like because they come from a variety right so like some some of my friends come from the like the upper edge of the socioeconomic spectrum and some of them came from like down on the farm and they were they were not they were not there for that noise like mm. in it mm just (laughs) know you know so like i it's a thing you want to be conscientious of right like if if you have friends that are hawaiian or other forms of pacific islanders um don't be a jerk Uh, you know like there are a lot of games that fetishize the pacific islands
0: that's That's true there's quite a lot
1: a lot right like Forget just Bora Bora. I've got Bora on the on the list right here Bora Bora and Haleakala, Carcassonne, South Seas, Cacao, Mangrovia, Tuluva, just it, Maori. Just tons of them, right? Like they just yeah, you know, um, these people live this. Like like, don't disrespect that, you know. And then there's the flip side of it. Like you know, my family up through my mom's side have been in the U.S. sit for two hundred years or whatever. Like Midwestern white to the core Methodist, like trying to reach through into them and to get them to understand some of this stuff. It's a whole different frame. Like if I come at it as like straight, straight line through social justice, their ears turn off. Mm. I have one cousin who listens, but the rest of them, right? Like, I mean, through my mom's side of the family, you go back one generation into my mom's generation and it's, subsistence level farming so you know my cousins and I represent the first generation of our family that had choices and had liberties
0: so maybe this is where games can do a good job since they're not putting it straight in your face like uh you know maybe they could show subsistence farming in a colonized culture and and try to to bring then and you know I don't know I'm just trying to see, I, I really can we re- reach people who don't understand um, or don't believe that oppression is existing currently in, in in European countries, I'll say, today, in a way that, that – or are, are, are can we use games to reach them, basically, becomes the question. Yeah. Is this a tool for helping – to develop social justice
1: I think if we were serious genuinely serious about gaming as an art form we could build the the artifacts that we need but they don't exist currently right of everything on the list here freedom the underground railroad is the quote-unquote accessible positive example of an artifact that we have here have you all ever tried to teach freedom to a non-gamer
3: Oh, no. it's, it's, oh it's, a, it's it, a deep game
1: yeah i mean you melt their ears like just brain coming out of the ear just flowing right out you just <laughs> yeah. melt their minds it is multiple interlocking systems it is way too complicated
0: it's not an entry-level game no, so it's only going to go it's, to a it's certain not, culture of people in the first place yeah
1: you've, you've got you've to for freedom to be actually accessible you already have to be a pretty substantially educated gamer in terms of the mechanisms of gaming
2: mm-hmm.
1: like we do not have an entry-level artifact We don't have something that you can take into a classroom with ninth graders that don't otherwise have gaming experience. There is, um, so Academy Press that puts out Freedom, Mm -hmm. they have an entire series of books that they accompany their games to be used in the classroom, right? That's Academy Press's goal as -hmm. a company. Mm -hmm. You know, you can, to use Freedom, there is an entire curriculum built around it. There's a teaching manual and other materials to help support it because the materials of the game are quite nuanced but then just getting kids to be able to play it is hard.
0: yeah you can probably speak to this a little bit Brian because you have been tr- you've tried to teach history with games in class is that correct
3: to a certain extent with with using game theory anyway um, uh, so, Teaching, especially seventh graders who've never played a game before, but especially in my, especially in my um, arena, the school I teach at is extremely rural,
2: mm-hmm.
3: so the access to games is very very small. They the, the library has a copy of um, Whitson Wagers' family that I donated.
0: Oh, okay, all right. I was going to say um, they had that before you came. No,
3: no, no. They did not have that before I came. But the media center was so thrilled to get it because they're like, I've heard of Whitson Wagers. And a family version. I said yes. It's you know family friendly. The last time we had um, we had a um, a reward day where students, all of our students are are, ba- are judged based on three criteria. If they meet those three criteria, they get to go to the celebration day. Um, it's a game in and of itself, trying to meet these three criteria. Um, a certain number of no no, no more than a certain number of missing assignments, no more than a certain number of unexcused absences. and you have to get uh, you have to have behavior goals too. If you meet all three, if you meet two of the three, you get to go. The next time we do judgment, which we do this quarterly, the next time we do a judgment, you don't get to go if you fail at one that you failed at last time. So you, that's one, if you fail at one or more of them, you must meet those in order to go to it. So if, if you've failed on the behavior scale, but you succeeded on the other two, well, you have to now succeed at the behavior scale, regardless of what you do with the other two in order to go. So any anyway, when we went, um, all the teachers were supposed to take you know, 10, 20-minute um, time times, in there watching over the kids, making sure they don't break themselves or whatever. Because, you know, they're in the gym, they're playing basketball, and they have this little cubby off to the side where they play board games and stuff. But the kids have pretty much free time. They can sit on the bleachers and gab. They can play basketball. They can, you know, play board games. Well, right at the very beginning, we had a lot more kids than we thought we were going to have who succeeded this time because, you know, there were no requirements. It was just meet two. out two out of your three goals. Mm Mm-hmm. And they came. They called me on the intercom and asked, "You know, Mister Priest, can you come down at the very beginning and help us out here?" And I said, "Sure." And I, being the guy I am, came equipped with a bag full of games anyway, because I'm me. I went in at the very beginning, and I brought out ink and gold. I brought out Suru. Mm. I brought out um, Wits and Wagers family, and these kids just were like, "What is this sorcery you have here in oh, front right. of you? We've never heard of these games." We thought you would bring something, because they had, you know, Life, they had Uno, they had...
0: Connect Four. Connect Four, the standards into. you would
3: imagine. And the kids see this thing called Ink and Gold, and they're, what
0: is this?
3: And I've cracked it open. And of course, you know me, I don't use the cards, I use chips, so they get to hold chips in their hands. And mm-hmm. decide if they're going to go on or not. And the whole push-your-luck aspect blew their minds. And then we played Suro, which also oh my god blew their minds they couldn't and it's gorgeous because call
1: ip makes gorgeous pieces of art
3: exactly so you know just introducing them to games along that line if i tried to introduce them to something like freedom
0: yeah you wouldn't do that
3: their their little minds would implode on themselves so i mean i'm i'm working up to ticket to ride let's put it that way (laughs) i'm working up toward ticket to ride at this point but I did have one student from sixth grade who was directed to me who wants to start a board game club. And um, I said, well, sir, you and I are of, of similar minds. Let's let's work with this.
1: Come be among your people. Yes. Yeah. yes.
3: <laughs> Come, hear the song of my people. Roll Chuck.
0: <laughs> so it, it, it it's obviously a challenge. If we're going to use games to teach these values, then entry-level games aren't doing it right now
1: we need we we, there's a big need here for entry-level games that engage these issues um but there's also a need for mid for mid-level like midweights and heavyweights you know like on the one end right so we've got we've got games like um uh, twilight struggle right brilliant deep phenomenal game about the cold war you can keep teach use it to teach an enormous body of knowledge about the cold war why isn't there something? so we have days of ire coming out from mr b games soon you know using similar mechanics that that drawn from twilight struggle and pandemic and a few other things and it teaches about the the hungarian revolution okay Um, so one player can play the russians um or you can make it fully cooperative but it'll be out soon it's not out yet okay um So why don't we have one about like South Africa and apartheid?
0: I think the answer here is because it doesn't sound fun. You know, if Twi- I want to play a game. Twilight Struggle is a,
1: it's definitely a heavyweight. It's, it, it's restrictive in its audience because of that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think it looks like Days of Ire is going to be more approachable. Okay. Um, if for no other reason than it has a co-op mode. Um, so no one has to be the bad guy. You can simulate the bad guys.
0: So you feel it's doable?
1: Uh, yeah, so going back through the top five hundred, right? Mm-hmm. I, I looked at the designers and I looked at the artists. and every single one, a hundred percent of them came from European heritage. that we well, of the ones that we have biographical information on, it's interesting to note, the BGG users apparently do not care about artists because there's a very high probability that the artist's biography will not be present in the bgg data um so after holding out that variable um everybody that remains um strongly represented by germany and then france and then italy in that order with a few portuguese a few polish and then a handful of canadians and americans that's everything in the top 500 that deals with these themes that I could get my hands on, I could find. So I may have missed a couple. Looking back at it, I missed Five Tribes.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about Five Tribes.
1: But that's Bruno Catala, that's Days of Wonder, that's an American and French operation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and we, we need to do a better job at getting designers and artists that have a direct knowledge, whether it's academics uh, who have studied this material or people who are actually from these cultures they desperately need to be included in this conversation and they're not we as gamers need to start demanding of publishers that these people are given a seat at the table yes Right. when you listen or if you manage to ever make it to Essen or if you listen to people talking about the SN Game Fair. People come from all over the world, from Asia, from Africa. These these designers and these artists are out there. Mm -hmm. And they have no commercial channel to the European and American markets. This is a decision that we have made.
0: It's an institutionalized form of oppression, basically. Because we're not buying those games or we're not... The commercial, uh, the publishers
1: yeah. are not the publishers and distributors are not carrying them, not reselling them.
0: So, as consumers, then our, our messages need to be to TMG and to Queen and to all of these regular stronghold, all these regular gaming companies that have ignored those areas.
1: Uh, look at the the forming but giant that is Asmodee. Yes, Asmodee may have a, may have a financial bank deep enough to handle some of this risk. I can understand why a company like Stronghold doesn't, right? The operating margin at Stronghold is such that one catastrophe of a release could jeopardize the entire company,
0: right? And so they're, yeah.
1: they're somewhat more successful now than some of the other smaller companies. You know, Asmodee is still tiny when we start talking about the, what capitalism really looks like, right? So the entirety, the last numbers that I saw that the, 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 Total trade volume of all of hobby gaming that we represents our, our hobby, that was just slightly bigger than the gross income of Riot Games that manages uh, League of Legends. Right, mm-hmm. So one company in the electronic space did as much trade in terms of capitalization as our entire hobby
2: On a game that's distributed for free.
1: Yes, on a game that's free (laughs) to play.
2: (laughs) Okay, I didn't know that part either. Yeah.
1: Right? So Asmodee being the single biggest player is still a gnat compared to somebody like Hasbro.
2: Yeah. And I mean, you're also competing with, on the education side, I've actually taught game design to kids. But teaching game design today means electronic, means teaching coding. It's not yeah. you know, and yeah. and there's 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 that's an entirely different conversation. The the problems still exist in the digital space, but when people talk about and, and I think that's something that I can comp- you know, you compete with when when you're coming up to a kid and you show them a game, like, well to me a game is Grand Theft Auto or Call of Duty, not this very elaborate, you know, um um tabletop game. And and it is a shame that we don't have, you know, that it's just shifted so far. And that has a lot to do with it's just, you know, distribution is easier in digital and digital and things like that. But it, I understand it, it is, there's so many different places to address that. Because if we were teaching kids how to make games, like I've seen many social, uh, socially conscious, social impact games made from kids who are very young and they're, you know, most of them are digital.
1: Yeah, and, I mean, on the digital front, right, there are some absolutely brilliant pieces of work being made, um, like Papers, Please. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Yes.
1: Um. Um. So oh, we should probably describe Papers, Please. For It's a little outside of the target audience for this podcast.
2: I always talk about video games. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, this yeah, is okay. uh <laughs> Ballywick. That's not the right word.
1: Yeah, but... Uh, so just you know the the core conceit of papers please, is that you are the the immigration official like with the ex- deny and approve button you know it's it's a pretty it can be a pretty brutal experience under a totalitarian regime yeah, under a totalitarian regime um and then other uh, you know another beautiful game uh, this war of mine, like living through like living through this type of revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, is the core conceit of that game I think. these artifacts exist as Hoseway says out in the digital world and they don't exist in the print world in our corner of the print world Right? art at large engages this but art for board gaming doesn't
0: so this is I guess our call to our our uh, our hobbyists and to those people who are informing our hobby is that we would like to see more games that represent uh, a more real-world example of what's what's gone on in our history and what's going on presently and yet we still want you to make it enjoyable um, so I, I feel like we've spent a lot of time on this and I, I want to make sure that everybody's got their thoughts out um, while realizing that we've talked about it for a while and, and maybe it's time to, to bring it to a close. Uh, so let's just go around the table and get uh, maybe statements of impact or conclusion or whatever you wanna say uh, before we uh, close out. Um, let's start with Josue. Uh,
2: yeah, if, if anything that we talked about resonates with you in particular, like a gaming experience that ever made you feel uncomfortable. Like I, I definitely want to to hear about that because um, again, these are these are opportunities for learning, they're opportunities to create conversations that, that may not happen otherwise. And because they're interactive, because we're experiencing something, they're, you know, they're amazing opportunities. And and I just love to hear those stories. Which, in fact, okay. I actually add to I'm building a library of this type of thing <laughs> and there is a game section now that I remember. And um, so actually, if you send them to me, I will start adding them to that wiki because I and especially like the story of how it worked and how that helped you. I would like to hear it.
0: OK.
3: OK, so I, I'm. I had my own um, perspective on this. Um, I kind of came at this from a different perspective, you know, as a white male, but growing up in the seventies and eighties, I was also a white male geek, a very open white male geek, um, which got me a lot of beatings, a lot of, um, a lot of abuse and such. And so, you know, th- there are, games out there that kind of in a way didn't teach about that but instead glorified it like uh, lunch money oh. was one like that mm. i picked that game up because i heard how bad it was and i thought well there's no way there could be a game that bad but it was for sale it was like two dollars on a on a you know, bargain bin, so i thought i'll get it and check it out i played it twice and thought and i played it once and thought okay maybe i'm just reading too much into it i played it a second time and traded the game off Cause.
1: Yeah, so I've actually played Lunch Money, and I played it when it was when it was new, and this is like one of those like points of just what was I thinking? Because we played it and we enjoyed it, but we were the the target that it was punching down to, hmm. and like to engage. This is a really good point for me personally. Like like engage as the oppressor,
3: and instead of rejecting the structure of the oppression, kind of like, like the video game bully did mm-hmm. at that time mm-hmm. and i played that one briefly i rented it this time because i was smart and i thought you know maybe i can play this game as a good person and you know go against the bully stereotype N- no this nope. game pretty much explicitly forces you to be a bully um in order to succeed and this guy like, ah, no no i'm just going to delete the save on this i'm good i'm, I'm, I'm okay hmm. but then um I, I keep dipping into video games because really that's where a lot of this is covered um the 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 in the greatest way but Dragon Age was great for that I played every race every style of character possible in the original Dragon Age and the oppression that you experience as a sorcerer being forced to be part of the circle and having people who could you know cut you down if they wanted to um, playing as an elf who came from a city um, and the elves in in Dragon Age are an oppressed race. Um, and playing as a dwarf, if you come from the common areas and you're not you're not um, from a noble family, you're also further further oppressed. And then going to, and playing the other spectrum where you're playing a human noble or um, a dwarven noble, and you're one of the oppressors who gets you know brought down a notch and has to go out and fight these things. It was an interesting dichotomy to play, and I played like I said I played through the entire storyline for every race. And every class possible because I was just completely fascinated with the relationships they made between oppressors and oppre- the oppressed in that game. So anyway, long story short, <laughs> too late.
2: What okay. Are
3: so,
1: okay. yeah, I mean, take away call to action, right? Like as individuals, we need to listen. You. So just the, as of this recording, one of the newest news posts on BGG includes um some coverage of conan the board game yes right so conan is deeply racist in its uh, mythology deeply sexist in its mythology but Asmodee attempted to erase some of the racism with the release of conan the board game Mm -hmm. but didn't made no efforts to to mitigate the sexism and there's a really good talk about this on the shut up and sit down podcast uh, sorry the their live video review of Conan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Quinn's talks about this. Um, plenty of people have. So BGG just put up a post and like as of late Friday, no, early Saturday is when I linked it to y'all. And there's a one line item in there and we should put the links of all of that stuff. in. Yeah. A, in, we'll put in, all the in links. The notes into notes. Yeah. going forward. But anything. The First, mentioned, the first like... comment is an American white male mansplaining how none of this is a problem. And then the comment section goes absolutely ape. It is just wild. Like some people showed up to, to be present and to witness the, hey, this is real and this is a problem. But BGG is a community, right? Like we're geeks. We're supposed to be good to each other. Nope. Like all the nasty, the fangs, the claws came out. In the first 10 comments, it got ugly mm. and brutal. Right? As, as individuals, we need to listen more. When, to people, the people who are on the receiving end of oppression, we need to listen more. Listen first, think deeply and, and use our empathy. It's not, a, it's, as much as we would like to think, it's not a natural stance. We frame everything through our own egos. This is the natural frame of the human mind and we need to do a better job of understanding this issue from outside of our frame and the other half of that is we need we need to demand of publishers that they find a better voice for the for this material let the people who understand it develop it you know as a good example of this right it's been the refrain in Hollywood for a long time that stories and plot lines that sort of center white males. That's what sells. That's commercial success. Has anybody checked the box office, box office receipts for Moana?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: That movie is brilliant. Amazing. It's beautiful. The music is great. And it centers the Polynesian people from the very core of it. And it did amazing because it's an amazing piece of art.
3: And then, like La- unlike Aladdin, they don't whitewash the characters.
1: Hmm. No, you know. So we we just have no excuse. Good, brilliant, good to brilliant art, beautiful art can be made that engages these this material, gives voice to the historically disempowered, and can teach. And reach audiences that are historically not predispos-
0: predisposed disposed. Disposed
1: predisposed thanks. tongue twister predisposed to receive it. It can be done. We should demand it because lazy art does no one any good.
0: Right, and and the thing I'm realizing as a result of being part of this discussion is that. We may say that board games, video games, our media frames a certain level of, it abstracts down to a certain level. It abstracts down to story or it abstracts down to activity, um, our ways of viewing our culture or the cultures of others. But what it comes down to is those people who are setting the boundaries around how we express ourselves within those art forms are ultimately determining whether or not we're going to think about or not think about our actions in relation to others. And so if you have a board game, perhaps like lunch money, which I know nothing about, but if you have a board game like that, that in some way pushes you into a position where your choices are bad and bad, if you don't have any self-reflection in that bad and bad, you're just going to continue to encourage it. And so as consumers, I think we need to make sure that we're putting our money into projects that are more educated about these issues. And then I would make a call to artists and creators to please research your material and bring it to us in a way that will help enlighten us rather than dumb down our ability to understand the ways that we are already inculcated into institutionalized oppression. So that's a pretty heavy answer to what we've been talking about. In, in terms of oppression in board games. And I will also make the same call that Hostway made, which is, you know, if you guys have experiences about that, that with board games particularly that you would like to bring to us, you can send that information to gamers at roll for, rollingforchange.com. That's our email address. Our Twitter address is at rollforchange. And uh, just contact us and let us know what your thoughts are. We'd love to explore that and maybe put some discussion up on the Rolling for Change website. So I want to thank everyone for being here. This has been an incredible discussion and hopefully it's been enlightening for everyone else that's listening. And uh, once again, I've been your host, Woody Harris. I have been joined by Way Cardona, Brian Peace, and David Skoog. And you've been listening to Rolling for Change. Thanks for listening. Dun, 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 Cut. Dun,
2: dun. <laughs> I thought that was great. That was like a great yeah.
0: discussion. Yeah, it was. I, I Yeah, wow. <laughs> I'm
2: stopping my recording.
0: You've been listening to Rolling for Change, a proud member of the Geek Therapy Network. If you'd like to contact us, our email address is gamers at rollingforchange.com. We can also be found on Twitter at Roll Our theme music is composed by rocket scientists, excerpts from the song Galileo. You can find them at rocketscientists.fancamp.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll have a new episode in the can in the next few weeks. We look forward to hearing from you.